kind of a strange tale, isn't it? It's bizarre, if you're perfectly honest. It's a very odd parable that Jesus tells us here. I've really wrestled with it this week. And I think the first thing for us to, to really get into our heads as we look at this, uh, this particular story, this particular encounter with Jesus, that this is a parable. <laughs> might sound really stupid to say that, but it's a parable. It's a story that Jesus told to help us to understand something of who he is and something of the kingdom of God. It's not necessary to see it as an allegory. An allegory is, is where we kind of try to place each individual part of the story and say, well, that bit means that bit, and that bit means that bit, and that person stands for that, and that person stands for that. Our natural instinct is to kind of think, well, yeah, who, who is the manager? What does he stand for? And who is, is the, the steward? Who does he stand for? But in a parable, it's not necessary to do that and I think that that can be a little bit of a smokescreen in understanding what we're saying because it's not an allegory we're not being asked to kind of assign different characters in the story to, to people that we might recognise Jesus brings the teaching of this parable in at the end of the passage, really the second half of the passage. And so as we think about what well, he's telling the story, who's he telling the story for? Verse 1 suggests, well, it's the disciples. Then he told the disciples, verse 1, and the disciples are all ears as we begin this story. But actually also, verse 14 the Pharisees heard all this. And so Jesus was speaking to a, a wide range of people who might needed to have heard different things within what he was saying. And so we'll try and unpack this. And between verses 8 and 14, I believe there are four things that emerge. The first couple come out quite gently and, and quite with a bit of difficulty I think they come out of two quite perplexing verses but the second two points that I think Jesus is trying to make are much clearer nonetheless challenging but much clearer so let's dive in and uh, see where we go with this. I have to say this week has been a really dark week for me. I don't know why. Maybe partly to do with, with just mum and, and losing mum, you know, five, six months ago and, and all that that kind of brings back as it comes to this. But it just has been a really dark week for me. And actually at one point yesterday, I can't even preach tomorrow. There is no way I'm going to be able to preach tomorrow. I, I cannot possibly. And... I just have to give glory to God. Some people prayed with me last night. I slept like a log and I woke at five and my mind was clear. And I give thanks to God for that. So I hope that uh, my mind continues to be clear. <laughs> first, let's look at the story. Those first eight verses tell quite a, a, a bizarre story. As I read it, 
I kind of thought the manager was a little bit like Baldrick, do you know, from Blackadder? I have a cunning plan, he says from time to time. Oh, no, that's, Bald- uh, that's Blackadder himself, isn't it? But anyway, there's that kind of slightly comical, bizarre thing going on in here. It's quite common in, 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 in the days that, that Jesus was alive on the earth to have a wealthy man who had someone manage his estate. I guess it's kind of common today that there would be people that would manage other people's finances and money. And those managers would have had freedom to conduct the financial dealings of that wealthy person on their behalf. We don't really know too much about the circumstances, about who the, 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 the master was. We don't know too much about who the steward, the manager, was. But the story captures a very harsh reality. He's done something wrong, he's been found out, and he's about to be out on his ear. And there wasn't any social security for him to go and get help from. He was stuffed. Either he was going to be begging, or having done uh, all these years in, in an office, his hands were a little bit too kind of soft and lily white to be able to do any digging. And so he was really beginning to panic. So what does he do? Well, he does a bit of wheeling and dealing, a bit of woo and a bit of wee, just weaving in and out. He has a cunning plan. And he goes to those that owed his master. And the most likely scenario of what is going on here is he approaches people that owed his master and they would have been paying him in kind. So maybe they owed him rent for a piece of land on which there was an olive grove and they were going to pay him in kind in olive oil. But what is interesting here is almost certainly what was going on is that the landowner, the master, was charging interest above and beyond what was owed. And the Jewish law was very clear that that was not acceptable. And what the manager appears to do is he cuts the debts quite radically. But there's a good chance that what he was doing actually was was cutting the amount of interest that was owed so that the debt was being returned to what was genuinely owed. We don't know that for sure, but speculation seems to suggest that that's a reasonable understanding of what Jesus was trying to get at. And of course, this would have left actually all three people in a good light. It was a win-win situation. It was a win for the manager, the steward, because actually he would have curried favour with a bunch of people who owed debts. And so, as he said, well, maybe I'll be able to go to them and they'll kind of give me a, a little bit of help because I've given them a little bit of help. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It would have been good for those that owed the, 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 whatever it was that they owed, the, the, the bushels of wheat, the, the olive oil, because actually they were going to have to pay back slightly less. So they were sitting pretty as well. And actually it was good for the master, because all of a sudden he will be well regarded by these people who owed him stuff. And they'll be thinking, yeah, he's quite a reasonable chap. 
So there seemed to be a kind of loads of winners going on in there. And so that's how we get to this shrewd manager. You, you probably know this, but it's worth saying. Of course, the, 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 the Greek text of our New Testament didn't have these wonderful titles, the parable of the shrewd manager. Didn't even have chapters or verses. In fact, didn't even have punctuation. In fact, didn't even have little letters. It was all capitals. So bless the scholars who have waded and waded through the Greek to help us. But we get to a place where we can put a little title saying the parable of the shrewd manager. That's helpful to us. But we see that the manager was shrewd by what he did in his wheeling and dealing. So what are we to learn from this funny little situation? where there's a guy doing a bit of wheeling and dealing. If I were to try and sum it up very, very simply, it might be this. Jesus might be saying, well, shrewd. Okay. That's okay. That's good, yeah. But people, there's something to learn. I have something better than being shrewd. Don't be satisfied with mediocre when there is something better. What do I mean by that? Let's just unpack the, the four things that I think emerge from verse 8 onwards. First of all, verse 8 begins by quite a strange thing. The master commends the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. So is Jesus commending dishonesty here? Is that what's going on? Because you could possibly be looking at that and thinking, yeah. But no, I don't believe so at all. Not least because the rest of Scripture speaks in that that is not what Jesus would be saying. Jesus would not in any way, shape or form be commending dishonest practice. But then, 8b, Jesus seems to begin to make comment. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. The people of the light, those who seek to follow God and honour him. And I think what he's saying there is actually... People who seek to follow in God's ways. Maybe. Maybe we can learn something about the energy and the, 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 the enthusiasm and the, and the ingenuity of much of goes on in the world. Are we inclined just to sit back on our hands sometimes in a little bit of a holy haze and just think, well, well the Lord will do it. And actually, we could be doing something to serve God and honour God by using the gifts that we have been given. That we can seek out the kingdom of God 
even in situations that seem to be a bit murky. See, Jesus is finding something even in the midst of that murky situation that can be commended, that that he got up and he got on and he did something. And I wonder, in the midst of our own culture in 21st century Britain, in the arts, in technology, in our workplaces, in politics, can we see things that in and of themselves, actually, there's a bit of murk around them. But, but in there, is there something that can be redeemed to give God the glory? And if we are involved in those things, can we be the agents of God's kingdom that maybe can redeem something that is otherwise perhaps something we'd say, oh no, shouldn't go near that. Remember at the beginning of the series, we looked at a passage from John's Gospel where Jesus was praying for his people who are in the world. Not that we become completely influenced and sullied by the world's standards and values, but that we are a part of the world, that we might be kingdom people in the world. And I think there's just a pointer to that there. In verse 8, the second half of it, seeing that actually we can learn stuff from those that don't know the Lord Jesus. And actually we can use that to the advantage of the kingdom of God and even draw those from whom we learn towards God's kingdom. Then verse 9. Curiouser and curiouser. Alice in Wonderland, I think it is. But verse 9 gets even a bit more strange, I think. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Hello? What's that all about? Is that, say, buy your friends, buy your place in the kingdom of God, earn yourself into heaven? But that's what it looks like if you just read that on its own. But we perhaps just need to see this within the Jewish culture and the Jewish context within which it was being spoken. It actually has the feel of a verse out of the Proverbs. It has a feel for, for, for wisdom literature almost. See, in Jewish culture, it was held that if you were, if you were merciful to the poor, then actually you would stand yourself in good stead in the life to come. That the saints who had gone before you would look kindly upon you if you were merciful in this world. Of course, Jesus, in his life, death and resurrection, kind of builds on that and and turns it a little bit on its head. But I think he's picking up on that sense of what people would have understood as Jews. That yes, maybe there is something to be done with our worldly wealth. 
I think this verse begins to pick us up towards the conclusion in verse 13 that Jesus ultimately wants us to get to. But there are three things I think you can pick out of here that maybe help us to understand this verse a little better. First of all, worldly wealth, our material stuff, shouldn't be seen as ours by right, but it's on loan. Use worldly wealth. Not your stuff, but use what you have. Treat it with open hands, lightly. That's the first thing that we need to maybe hold on to this morning. All that we have is not our own, but is gift from God. And we can, we can kind of agree with that, but actually that's quite a challenging thing. Particularly when we've worked hard all our lives. We deserve to have this or that or this comfort. God has blessed us with so many things, but we need to hold them lightly. Second thing I think that, that kind of just floats around this verse 9 is actually what you do with your stuff matters. What you do with what you have matters. Don't just affect you. And the third thing that I see in there is that actually there's a question will you make friends? or enemies through the things that you have because verse 9 says I tell you use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves well maybe the opposite of gaining friends for yourself is actually making enemies for yourselves see what you do with your stuff matters how you acquire what you have matters will you trample on people in order to get what you think you deserve? Or will you maintain integrity? So I don't believe that this is about buying your friends or buying your way into the kingdom of uh, of God. Again, that would contradict scripture in other places. And so we have to hold this within the understanding that we have of the wider canon of scripture. Our righteousness is by grace. We are saved by grace. And grace alone, we cannot earn our way into heaven. We cannot buy friendship with God. But of course, as James says, we need to allow our deeds to speak for the faith that we profess. So let's be reminded as we see verse 9 that actually what we have does impact beyond the here and the now. And actually it becomes a little bit clearer as we now go into verse 10, 11, 12, 13. See verse 10, whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. There's a real encouragement in that, isn't there? 
Because actually, maybe some of the stuff that we do feels a bit insignificant. Don't feel very important. But actually, God notices the little stuff, and the little stuff matters. And it's not the only place where Jesus takes that, that, that sense of, you, you've been trusted with little, so let me trust you with more. Let's be faithful servants, whether we have big responsibility or small responsibility, that we might honour God. So there's a real encouragement there, but actually there's also, I think, an indictment on the manager. See, whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. See, while I think that the manager was a shrewd man, it's also clear he was a dishonest man. And whilst there were certain things that maybe we could learn from him, actually his conduct and his heart was towards self and self-preservation. And he got found out. And so he got even more dishonest. If you've, been, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus is building towards verse 13. Thinking of the kingdom of God. Begs us to ask the question, what are we doing with our stuff, with our gifts. If you're honest, do you see all that you have as a gift from God? Or do you actually see it as blinking well mine because I've worked jolly hard for it? And yes, I'll give a little bit to the church and I'll give a little bit here, but they better be grateful for it. Otherwise, I'll give them what for. That kills our churches. That kills Christian community. Where what is offered is hard and expects return. When in actual fact, we're investing in the kingdom of God. Don't get me wrong, it's difficult. It's really hard, isn't it? because we're surrounded by the stuff that we have but please brothers and sisters today take the opportunity maybe if there's just a little bit of leisure this afternoon I know we don't get much of that but just think well what do I have and, and am I holding on to it tightly or am I just deeply grateful to God and am I wanting to serve God with all that I have the gifts of my hands the gifts of my head the gifts of my fingers the gifts of my heart the gifts of my wallet am I really wanting to serve God and may the Lord bless you as you are honest with him May he show you perhaps ways in which you can be used to flourish in, in the gifts that you've been given. 
even though it might require a sacrifice. I digress a little bit. On to verse 13. Can't get much clearer, really. No servant can serve two masters. Either they, they will, he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I guess actually the steward wouldn't have got into that mess if he'd been using his skills to the glory of God, would he? He wouldn't have had to go wheeling and dealing if actually he'd been trying to honour God by serving his master well instead of trying to stitch him up. And I guess the heart of the passage comes in verse 15. It is a perplexing passage. But the heart of it comes in verse 15. Right in the middle there. God knows your hearts. That's what Jesus wants to take away from that encounter. God knows your hearts. God knows my heart. God knows your heart. And he loves you. He loves you. And he earnestly wants you to follow him wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly, not Sunday-heartedly, but throughout the week. Whatever you're doing this time tomorrow, God wants you to be serving him wholeheartedly, giving your all to your work, giving your all to your family, giving your all to whatever it is that you are doing at any given point in the week, but knowing that God loves you and delights in you. God wants you to use what he's given you to bring just a little glimpse of the kingdom of God into the place where you are. I haven't got a neat ending for this morning. So maybe let's just pause. And just reflect on where our hearts are in relation to all that God has given us. God has breathed life into our bodies. And maybe right now is a real struggle for you. Just encourage you. to surrender your struggle into God's hands. Ask him for help and strength to know how to, to walk through those struggles.
may you honour God with all that you are and all that you have.